Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even $1 an episode is highly appreciated. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. In this episode, I'm speaking to Tom Tsertes, the founder and director of Embryonic, a London-based digital design studio. Embryonic specializes in creating virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality experiences that help organizations communicate, educate, and entertain more effectively. Apart from the traditional applications in gaming and education, VR is now increasingly important for industrial design and engineering in general. For example, Embryonic recently partnered with Old Nippon Airways to provide customers an immersive virtual tour of Old Nippon's new business class in the Boeing 777 cabin. Embryonic has also partnered with Acumen to create the Adient Ascent VR, a modular aircraft seating system that allows airlines to configure their cabins through a touchscreen interface and then experience what it's actually like to be in the cabin through a VR headset. Apart from discussing these two projects, Tom and I talk about the fundamentals of and differences between virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality, some of the advantages of VR that will transform the aerospace business landscape, and how engineers can benefit from using the technology. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tom Tsertes. Tom, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we delve into the world of virtual reality, um, I'd like to ask you uh, to introduce yourself to our listeners. So what is your background and how has your career evolved to where you are today? Well, I have a slightly unusual background. So um, I founded, I'm the founder of Embryonic and we are a virtuality and augmented reality development company. And uh, my background was originally actually in video games. So I used to work for Sega and companies like that. Um, I also have a kind of musical uh, background as well. So I, I, I'm a music producer and a DJ, a bit less now than I used to be. Uh, so my interests, I started getting involved in computers at a very early age, at the age of 10. Um, so I've always kind of been interested in the use of technology, uh, specifically in the creative field. Um, I studied at uh, Bristol University, actually, a computer science degree. Um, and I've gone through different jobs. I've worked in R&D labs um, for telecoms companies. I've been uh, consultancy uh, and, yeah, set up uh, Embryonic about five years ago um, and pretty much been entirely focused on this particular sector, VR and AR. And it's you know, very, very interesting to watch as this uh, industry has been developing. Great. So tell me a little bit more about Embryonic. So you've mentioned that you are a VR, AR company, but what is what are some of the projects that you've done in the past and what is generally the goal or the, the purpose of Embryonic? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very 
good question. Um, because VR and AR has been so kind of uh, such a new field, or it's not a new field, but it, this kind of re rebirth of the, the VR, I guess consumer VR and AR, which has kind of come around in the last uh, five, six years, uh, we've done all sorts of different projects. I mean, typically um, we've got done stuff from artistic stuff that's like with dance and experimental art, um, art installations. Uh, we've worked uh, in education. Uh, we've done some training. Uh, we've done health. We've we've created. Uh, I think it's going to be one of the world's first digital medicines. That's uh, oh, wow. it's, a, it's a VR therapy for cancer patients. Um, and but I think a lot of the crux of what we've done is around the kind of marketing and sales, and, and essentially it's around engaging people, uh, being able to communicate information uh, in a way that people. Uh, can really understand and is also memorable, which is something that VR, it's, it's an experiential medium. So you're not just a passive observer, you're actually, you know, you're someone participating in an experience. And and that's really where I brought my background in video games in uh, to this. It's around sort of interactivity and engagement. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what we've been doing, but with lots of different clients, you know, across different industries, logistics, as a health uh, and uh, aviation. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, in my personal experience, to me, the the background in terms of gaming is obviously clear, right? You you want to have some form of virtual reality addition to to the gaming experience to kind of make it a little bit more immersive. Um, but then now there's this kind of buzz around VR, AR, and MR. Um, in, in to, to get it into other industries. So before we kind of like talk about the aerospace industry and how VR can be applied there, could you just explain what are, so those three terms, VR, AR, and MR, I think that's virtual reality, artificial reality. Uh, augmented reality. Augmented reality. And mixed reality. And mixed reality. Okay. What are those about? What are the differences? So, so, and what do those mean? So they all kind of are clumped together in this thing called XR, which is extended reality. Essentially, uh, all these things are... Um, about so so virtuality is about being completely immersed in the virtual world so uh, in vr typically you 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 are ent entirely in that world uh, and you you are cut off from the real world and that's really great for transporting you somewhere or giving you an experience that uh, doesn't need the context of where you are um, now augmented reality and mixed reality they're kind of used a bit interchangeably um, what that involves is is superimposing virtual worlds on top of the real world, and um, I would say they're kind of essentially the same the same thing. Um, when people talk about mixed reality, they are typically talking about uh, headsets uh, that are augmented reality headsets, and they also suggesting that there's some uh, very specific contextual knowledge of the environment that you're in. Now, why is that useful? I mean, there could be all sorts of uses for augmented reality. So it's not so much about immersion, but it's a, it's about uh, expanding your abilities and your, your um, the information that you can gather from your, your space. Um, and it doesn't isolate you as much as virtuality does. So really, the, which technology you want to use really depends on your use case. Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, you can adapt it to the, to the use case. So what are some of the, like, the technical details? What are some of the pieces that come together to make VR a possibility or make it a reality. So for example, in my case, you know, the, the, the proliferation of these headsets, I've worn one in a museum in London at one point, but I don't really know how this all comes together. You know, how does the hardware intermesh with the software in the background? 
what are some of the pieces to make this technology possible? So, so one of the big drivers essentially um, of this has been the miniaturization uh, that's been ongoing in computing for a while and the increasing power of uh, specifically graphics processors, the GPUs. Um, this has enabled um, simulations to be created uh, at uh, much richer and at a, an update rate that's necessary for VR. Uh, a VR and AR experiences, like a VR experience specifically, uh, needs to be uh, run at a rate of 90 frames per second. Most video games in the past ran around 30 frames a second, but in order to have a kind of an experience that doesn't make you feel sick at 90, so that and also it needs to render for two eyes. So VR and, and MR are stereoscopic experiences. That gives you the sense of depth. Um, and the, the kind of third element has been around displays and lens technology. So another enabler has been like um, very light displays that are now comfortable that can be worn in your head. Um, and um, also the optics that have enabled um, the thing of having these glasses, these this screen so close to your head, to your eyes, uh, but you're not having to go completely cross-eyed to be able to see them. So there's a whole sorts of technologies that have come together. And what's interesting now, especially not not so much in, has been so much in VR, but in AR mixed reality, is now computer vision. And, and this is the third element. And computer vision allows the the computer to understand objects that are in the environment, where you are, how you're moving around in that space. Uh, and uh, so it's a really exciting uh, place where lots of these technologies come together to create these experiences. Mm -hmm. So just a follow-up question on this computer vision, is this kind of the same as you know these kind of artificial intelligence machine learning algorithms that if you point your camera at a, at a, at a flower, it knows that this is a flower rather than a car. Is that about, is that the same technology? That that's certainly one aspect of of that is coming into this space. That isn't hasn't been the case so much so far, but um, more of a computer vision um, has been around understanding environments, uh, specifically like um, if I'm in a space, uh, w what is a flat surface? So we might want to have a virtual object on a table. So I want to have the computer put the, my I don't know a virtual plant. On, on, the, on the surface table, it has to understand where what is a surface. Also, uh, they use um, technologies called SLAM, and this is a way of essentially allowing you to walk around the space and for the, the, the camera to understand where you are in that space. Mm -hmm. So that, that involves um, a level of AI, which is looking for features in the environment that it can track um, across time. And also it's um, in view, involves the fusing of other senses like accelerometers and gyroscopes to be able to create this model of a real world. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in terms of, I guess, what I'm, what I'm thinking is that perhaps VR, as that's more of the virtual reality side, is mostly visual. And then perhaps on the augmented side, can you also have tactile or haptic experiences intermeshed with, with the visuals or or how does the, the tactile aspect come into into the VR AR picture um, well with yeah well that's a very good point at the moment very little um, but there's definitely interesting research going on in this space so so one thing you can do uh, I say this is like mixed reality and, and some some places do this virtuality is that you're mapping a virtual world against a, phys a physical world and so if you can say well I have a switch over here in the virtual world, but I'm also going to have a physical switch. And when I and I match the two, so when I reach out to move this virtual switch, there's actually going to be something there. 
Um, that is one approach uh, you can take. In terms of haptics, there are things like people developing gloves that kind of give you some sort of tactile feedback. Um, there's a company in Bristol called Ultra Haptics, uh, who we've done a little bit of work with. Um, they they uh, use this to basically uh, use ultrasound to get the, the feeling of, of sensation on your fingers. Uh, so there's lots of people working in the space. Um, it's, it's quite a hard one to do in terms of, of that level of, of tactile because ultimately you're reaching out and touching a completely virtual object. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's not an easy challenge. No, absolutely not. Yeah, so I guess in terms of the gaming industry, it seems like the application of VR and AR is, is clear. But now we're hearing more and more about using VR in, um, in a business setting. So um, what are some of the ways that you think that VR and AR can be helpful? Or what are some of the applications that Embryonic has worked on or that you generally have in mind for the future in the, in the, in the business landscape? Yeah, so I think that there's, there's a lot, but um, breaking down to the big ones, uh, training and education is a big one. So uh, virtual reality allows you to, to, people, to, to put people in situations where they can practice stuff that is otherwise too expensive uh, too dangerous or impossible and practical to do in real life. Uh, so, for instance, um, firefighters are using it to, to train uh, their skills in, in burning buildings. You're seeing like oil companies, similar health and safety kind of stuff or on airplanes. Um, you can have simulators and, and different ways of training people up in these experiences. Um, the other spaces are there's quite a big thing in, in health uh, which is going on and people are really interested in, in looking at how you can use mm-hmm. vr to uh well not just train doctors but actually have specific therapies uh that you know changing mind states in order to be able to uh achieve a particular particular medical goal um and then there's this whole kind of level of visualization this is kind of where we've kind of been sitting mostly uh, and that's allowing people to visualize something that they isn't, doesn't either does not exist yet or is hard for you to go and, and actually experience that. So in our particular case, you know, this could be like visualizing what an aircraft looks like or it could be what does this, uh, you know, what does this robot look like? Or I can take you into a factory and show you how a piece of equipment works. These things are very hard to do unless you you know, your customer is going to your space or real estate, you know, it's like an architect going, well, um, you know, here's a render of your, what your new office building or your factory is going to look like. But if you can actually step inside this and walk around it, that allows you to have a, a much, uh, a much more interesting conversation about that space rather than trying to understand it from just a, a single render. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So let's dive into the, the aerospace industry. So uh, as far as I'm aware, you've done two projects with um, aerospace corporations, one being Al Nippon Airways, mm-hmm. and the other one was Adiant Airspace. That's correct. So can you tell us a little bit, you were talking about visualization, that that was kind of like the aspect of this of these projects, but what was the initial challenge of, of each of those projects? And then how was VR suited to solve that problem. Okay, so we worked with a design consultancy called uh, Acumen, and they they mostly like a, they've been designing aircraft interiors. So um, they came to us actually with the, their initial kind of problem. Um, in in the first case with with Adiant, um, what um, Acumen had created for them was a, a modular uh, seating system. 
The idea is that you could adapt it for different air, air, aircraft types um, or depending on the customer's need. Um, Adiant Aerospace are they were they're a new uh, company in this space. They typically they came from the car industry originally, Adiant, and they mm -hmm. did this uh, joint venture with, with Boeing. Um, so, what we used technology for in that case was um, as a kind of as as a as a tool for Acumen to then go to Adiant and Adiant to go to their airline customers and go, okay, we have this seating system. If you had it in this configuration, what would that make your aircraft feel like? So what we built was uh, essentially a configuration app. So it's an app where you could take different part, seating, seating parts and then quickly put them together to create your own bespoke cabin. Uh, and then you, know, you press a button and then you give it to your, your client can put on the headset and now they're in the cabin, you know, they, and they can actually walk around this cabin. They can walk down it, they can sit in the seats, you know, um, and you know you can change the look and the feel of it whilst they're in there, and you know that that gives you a really powerful way of them understanding what ha the potential of this system, um, and also then to be able to feedback and say, well, you know, oh yeah, but this could this be like this or could this be like that um, in a way that just you wasn't possible before. Um, with the all Nippon Airlines one. Um, it was a slightly different event. Our audience was was not B2B, it wasn't in the industry. Um, what they want to do is communicate to uh, frequent flyers and uh, travel agents and um, you know uh, big corporate buyers um, what the experience was about, uh, on their business class cabin. So they just recently had a new fleet of aircraft coming in and they've revamped their, in, their seating systems. And so, you know, how, how do you communicate that? So they'd have these events that go around the world, like they've done one in Tokyo, done one in London. There's another one coming up in New York shortly. And um, they will bring some seats there for people to look at, but that's not the same as actually being on the aircrafts. So what we did is created a virtuality experience where, you know, you put on a headset and now we take you on a journey of what your flight will be like. Uh, and we talk about the features of the, um, of the seating. So, you know, op open up your storage and take your laptop out and then switch on this light, have a meal, relax, use, use the in-flight entertainment system. And within two, three minutes, we've told that story. And, you know, again, thankfully, because of the, the realism and the power of, 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 of computers nowadays, that, that feels like quite a really a real experience. Okay, it's not exactly the same as reality, but it's very close and, pe and people... Um, the audience can really engage with that and just get excited about, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that in real life. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, putting my engineer's hat on in both cases, it sounds like you've basically created something that was previously really only um, available to pilots where they were, say, sitting in their simulator flying their aircraft. And you've now replicated this for a much broader audience. So in one case, it was business to business, one business um, showing another, their partner business, what they can what they can do in simulating the experience and in the other case um, it was a customer so is it true to say that um, in this case you're really accelerating or you have the ability to accelerate the design cycle that you can kind of like iterate through designs much more quickly oh, absolutely um, and, and this is a really important thing that um, previously you know these companies would be building physical models uh, in order to, to be able to understand the space. And, you know, building a physical model takes a long time. It's very expensive. I and mean, then you've got to ship the thing. 
to where your customer is, and these are global businesses. Um, so there's an immediate cost advantage to being able to essentially. So essentially, where we got, we stepped in is is um, Acumen had created uh, their engineering models and CAD models, mm-hmm. and obviously, as part of the work that they do, they would be looking into uh, materials and finishes, and they would do renders. Um, and so we allow them. We took this the next step, which is like we took those engineering models, we took their reference images, and then we created a virtuality simulation, um, and that they could then show that without actually having to build the physical the physical model. Um, now there's interesting space around potentially combining the two, so actually creating maybe a a physical model that is not a complete finished thing mm-hmm. and then using virtuality to essentially allow you to sit in the actual real seat and then see it with all its finished um, materials and finishes. Um, but I think that maybe that's the next step that we, we might do in the future. Great, that sounds fascinating. So in terms of the, the next steps, you mentioned before that education was one of the big fields for, for VR and AR. So could you imagine using uh, VR technology for educational purposes in the aerospace engineering industry? Say, for example, I don't know, training engineers or showing them how a piece of equipment works on the shop floor. Can you talk a little bit more about what you think are some of like the next steps um, for embryonic or also just the field in general? Yeah, totally. So um, there's different levels of education. You know, at one level, there's just purely engagement. Uh, we did a piece of work with uh, Essex uh, Skills Board. And that was actually around the logistics industry, and we created a virtuality experience that talked about the jobs in the logistics industry. And that, that was aimed at school children and students. Um, and the reason they wanted to do that is because if you if you say to a bunch of school children, you know, I'm going to tell you about logistics, they're all going to start to look at their phone. But if you say to them, like, oh, do you want to try out some VR? They're all going to queue up. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so we use... I guess the technology really is a kind of uh, an attraction, really. Now, in terms of more serious training training applications, uh, yeah, there's lots. So you can basically divide it into hard skills training, because if you look at how training is done, quite often there'd be an element that's done in the classroom, and then from the classroom they might then go into actual uh, work environments. Um, so what VR can be done, it can be used is to kind of accelerate that sort of classroom because it's much quicker to learn through doing than just watching someone present something on a screen. And that's really the power. And, and actually, it's not, it's not just more engaging, it actually is much more effective. And, and the research has shown that the retention of people going through virtuality training is around four times oh, than wow. classroom-based. Um, so there are big advantages to doing that. Uh, also, it means, you know, you, if, if you need to train on a particular equipment, you don't have to have that equipment there. That means that you don't have to bring all your engineers to a particular location. That saves you a lot of time. You could maybe bring just headsets to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, big, there's a big scope for that. The other interesting space is actually soft skills training. So there's a, kind of, there's a whole bunch of uh, research. We, did, we were involved in a project called Body Swaps, which was... Uh, more around kind of like leadership training. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, putting you in scenarios where you have to talk to AI characters and then being able to see your performance from their perspective. Oh, wow. So you basically swap bodies with each other after mm-hmm. you've done uh, a particular activity. So there's all sorts of fascinating ways where um, 
you know, VR is going to be used in training. In terms of AR, I mean, obviously, there's very people are starting to experiment with using it with engineers. So if an engineer is on site and they'll they're looking at uh, something they have to maintain or fix, uh, they can potentially see contextual information over the uh, the machinery. So they might go, okay, well, I I need to step one, you know, un loosen this valve here, step two, plug that. And so rather than them having to refer to maybe a, a technical sheet, they're seeing it in front of them, their hands are free because it's on a set of virtual glasses. Um, they can also potentially call in uh, a senior engineer who might be remote. Mm -hmm. So now they're seeing that senior engineer kind of through a video feed into their, their augmented reality glasses. Um, and it's just much easier way of working that's a little bit more um there are people starting to do that um but there are quite a lot of still like i guess technical logistical challenges in actually rolling that out widespread but but certainly vr in pacific some pacific training applications is is becoming very popular at the moment mm -hmm. so you're saying that there's still some barriers to rolling this out quite you know at a higher level so what are some of the what are some of the the barriers that still exist that need to be overcome and um what where at what stage is this is are we talking about basic r d research or is it just a matter of just sorting out the details to be able to do this so some some of the barriers are actually kind of quite practical at the moment uh it might be some sometimes just round uh the getting the headsets to people mm -hmm. uh the particular capabilities of some of the headsets uh, awareness of it. So I would say there's there's quite a lot of applications that are kind of ready to go now. Mm -hmm. um, I guess cost is another element of it. So, you know, like a lot of VR content is being bespokely made, uh, which can be quite expensive. And that's great for big companies, but um, for smaller companies, you know, you, you need more turnkey solutions to keep that cost down. Um, then there are technical barriers, certainly in AR, that we need to uh, look at, like, network connectivity over distance so 5g is probably going to help a lot with that if you need to connect people to servers there's battery life um there's the durability of the hardware um there's still advances in you know computer vision that need to be made to make this technology reliable enough to be used in in real spaces so um, it really depends on the case to case basis there's some stuff you can do really well now and there's some stuff that you can't. Mm -hmm. Cool. So one, one of the major projects in the British aerospace sector at the moment is that the Royal Air Force is basically commissioning a new fighter aircraft, which is called the Tempest. And one of the aspects in the development of the Tempest is everybody's talking about adding uh, VR to uh, simulations for pilots. So simulators have been used for a long time now to train pilots. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts? What is your opinion? on adding VR to, to the training experience. Is this useful or is it maybe that the simulators have evolved to such a degree that it's not necessary? I'd love to hear what you think about that. So there's a diff what, what a lot of VR does at the moment is it, it you can kind of have a, a lighter simulation experience. Ultimately, if you really want to simulate something, you want it to be as close as possible to the final thing. And simulators are very expensive to build. And, and a lot of that is because there's hardware to build and sophisticated software algorithms to, to simulate how the actual aircraft would um, behave in, in, out in the uh, environment. So having, I would say that essentially in some ways a simulator is a kind of virtual reality. Now what you can do with is take more and more of that 
purely virtual, more digital. So, but you you always lose. You come back to this thing about tac- tactileness. You know, like yeah, you I can make it look like you're inside an aircraft, um, but if you still need to reach out and flick a switch, uh, and that switch isn't there, then you slightly distance the virtual experience from the real one. And I don't think that uh, you would probably want to do all your training in a purely virtual environment. You you would probably still want to do some of it in a real simulator um, because virtuality doesn't replace that. But you, mu- you might well say, well, there are bits that we can do in virtuality before you go into a simulator because a simulator is, you know, maybe there's a limited number of simulators you can build and you might want to have a whole, whole lot of, uh, of pilots that you want to look to run through that simulator and maybe bandwidth on their simulators is one of your problems in which case you say okay well let's look at the bits that we can do well in virtuality and then to save a simulator for the bits that where that's really important yeah that makes a lot of sense that there's probably as you say that you have the cost on one side and then you have how real is it in terms of also tactile feedback on the other side and there's probably that middle ground where where vr and ar slots in perfectly where you're You've lowered the cost, but you still have enough of the real simulation around you to have a useful training experience. Yeah, because essentially to get to get a virtuality experience as good as a simulator, you're going to have to build pretty much all the simulator together. Right. <laughs> so you might as well have a simulator. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tom, it's been absolutely a pleasure talking to you. Um, just as a final question, how can listeners find out more about Embryonic and what you are creating in general in the aerospace sector? So the simplest way is just to go to our website, uh, which is embryonic.com. Uh, it's spelled M-B-R-Y-O-N-I-C, uh, so you don't have the E at the beginning. And uh, on there you can find a, a lot of our kind of case studies. Um, we're also on the usual social media sites, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, so yeah, a quick search will find us. Great. And I mean, of course, all those links will be in the show notes. And it's been an absolute pleasure learning about VR and AR today. Uh, so thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you would like to learn more about Embryonic and their projects in the aerospace sector, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where we find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.